Welcome to the City Voice Podcast, where we explore the issues that matter to Washington cities. We have a special guest with us here today, Peter King, who, as of the recording, is the CEO of AWC. But by the time that our our listeners hear this, Peter, you will no longer be the CEO. And that's unfortunately not because of some scandal, but because you've decided to retire. And uh, this is not going to be a tribute episode to you, Peter. Instead, I'm going to use this time to wring every last ounce of value we can out of you before you you hit the road. So a short podcast, is that what you're saying? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. So in August, you uh, announced your retirement as CEO of AWC. You've served in your role for the past six years, and you actually started your career as an intern here at AWC 45 years ago. Your last day in the office, uh, I mentioned, is coming up on October 1st, um, although that will be in the past by the time our listeners hear this. And uh, so you've worked with cities and other public entities across the country for four and a half decades. I want to find out what's changed and what has stayed the same. And I really want you to shoot straight with this here. So I'm going to add a disclaimer. The views expressed in this interview belong solely to Peter King and do not necessarily reflect the positions, attitudes, or priorities of the Association of Washington Cities or its board of directors. Do you feel free to give your opinion now, Peter? Well, I do, but I say that disclaimer is a little bit discomforting because I've spent 45 years being the voice and the and the <laughs> mouth of other people's opinions. And so it's very difficult for me to change gears and say this is about what I think because my job has been to communicate what others have been telling me for 45 years. But I'll, I'll be careful. I, I definitely identify with that challenge, Peter. Okay, well, the, the first question here is not going to be too scandalous, I don't expect, but I understand that you are AWC's fifth CEO and that you've met the other four CEOs. Is that right? I have. Okay. How, that doesn't even sound like it could be possible. So explain how that works. Well, when I, I went to, I was a senior at Washington State University and AWC had an internship opportunity and I was an intern during the 1976 legislative session. And being around AWC, we had an office in Seattle, and the first executive director of AWC was a gentleman gentleman named Chester Beeson, who in the 70s, he had been the executive director for literally for decades since the beginning. He was an older older gentleman in 1970s, but he stopped by the, the Seattle office on occasion and had an opportunity to meet with him and talk with him. At that point, the executive director was a gentleman named Kent Swisher, who came in the middle 70s. Um, and so I had an opportunity to work with and for Kent. And at that time, the director of legislative services was Stan Finkelstein. Later, Stan Finkelstein became CEO of, of AWC. So I was on the staff at the time that Stan was. And then after I departed, uh, Mike McCarty became CEO. And then when I came back, I had a chance to to meet Mike, so I hadn't met him before. So over that period of time, I, in fact, met and had a chance to visit with each of the executive directors, which is really a surprise. It is. That seems like quite the coincidence. Um, and I'm told that in a recent meeting, you were talking about the beginning of AWC, the formation of this organization, and there was something about the social context and governance of the 1930s. Um, can you tell us how the, how that impacted AWC's formation? Well, AWC was formed in 1933, and I think as the story goes, uh, the Yakima mayor called other mayors to Yakima because at that time prohibition was ending, 
and liquor taxes were going to be imposed, and the mayors at the time felt this is a time where some of those liquor profits and should be shared with cities and towns because we're in a law enforcement situation and a regulatory environment. But state municipal leagues like AWC actually got started as part of the good government uh, movement back in the 1890s, 1900s, where there was corruption in many large cities in the country. And AWC was created as kind of a a good government group in the 30s, like other groups like us. So there was League of Women Voters, uh, civic groups, uh, the council manager form of government had some of its beginnings back then. So it was like bringing oversight and professionalism and training and education was part of the mission. So we were created in 1933 and we're on the campus of the University of Washington in the Bureau of Governmental Research Division of the of the university until we until we split off. Well, that's interesting. Thank you for that. I, you, you, I'm familiar with those organizations, but without knowing that they all came from this kind of similar, um, similar movement. So, get, kind of fast forwarding to some some issues of uh, of immediate importance for our listeners, for the city leaders in Washington. I know that infrastructure has been an interest for you, and and since you've worked over these four and a half decades, and because you've worked across the country, I'm just curious to know how do you see things. Uh, being different here in Washington uh, in the year 2021 versus how you've seen them in the past. So just on the topic of infrastructure, what have you seen as challenges or opportunities in Washington um, that that may differ from those across the country? Well, I think for a, lo- a long period of time, there was an attitude that we can, we can build ourselves out of this problem. That is, if we just had more money, we could build and we wouldn't need to be creative. We could just do more of the same kinds of things. And I think the last 10 years or so, maybe 15 years or so, there's been a, a realization that we're not going to be able to build ourselves out of the tra- traffic congestion or water treatment plants. We've got to be more creative in terms of how these resources are applied. So that's one difference. And I think our state is really on the leading edge of many of those things. The concepts that we talk about in our state in, in many states are, are foreign. They're not on the agenda. We're, I think we're a forward-looking state and we're willing to embrace different things at the local level and the state level where you just don't see that as much in other, other states. Um, so movement away from let's build ourselves out of this. I think there's much more of a focus on main, maintaining existing infrastructure. Just because we have new revenue, we don't necessarily want to build, put all of that toward building new when clearly we can see other uh, parts of our infrastructure failing. Um, so I think a recognition that it has, we have to invest in our existing and build where it makes sense, but not all of the dollars or not a majority of the dollars should be put into into the um, you know building new. Gotcha. And does this include what uh, infrastructure people will sometimes call demand side management programs? So getting people to to drive less or to carpool or to use less water and that kind of thing? Right. I mean, that's part of the overall focus is, again, just building new systems is is not the answer. Building some new systems, but having a change in attitude, having a change in, you know, recycling kinds of efforts, uh, public information, outreach into the community, all of those things. You know, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have said those were part of the conversation. Now it's very much uh, in terms of how do we connect with our communities? How do we make sure that all the dollars are used wisely? Okay. And do you anticipate 
uh, a lot of federal funding for infrastructure coming the way of Washington over the next couple of years? If, if, and if so, I wonder if that challenges some of that, uh, some of that carefulness in, in terms of building new infrastructure. If we get a windfall of money, it seems like it's just human nature to say, well, let's go, let's go build our dream uh, infrastructure. Well, I think it's going to depend on what those what strings are attached to those federal dollars. I think the federal discussion now is ar- around, you know, building back better is the term that's being used, but also a focus on green infrastructure. You know, it may be more expensive on the front end to build things a certain way, but if you take the long-term approach and asset management, then it may not be um, as expensive, and you, you have to take a look at the totality of the project. So I think part of it's going to depend on what strings might be attached. I have to say that having been involved in infrastructure conversations probably directly for the last 20 years, having spent 16 years back in Washington, D.C., specifically working on infrastructure, I, I feel as though I'm hopeful that we're going to see a big package. Um, but I've been hopeful many, many times over the past two or three decades when things have not come together. I'm hopeful that we're going to see something that is truly an investment. But I also have, a, uh, I guess, a negative side or a little bit of a cynical side, having been involved in those conversations at the congressional level where there still isn't a recognition that the federal gas tax um, needs to be increased, in my opinion, because the purchasing power of that gas tax, which I think it's 1993, but don't quote me on that, the last time it was increased. That's why we are increasing gas taxes at the state level. And in some cases, we're able to take that slack up because the Congress has not been willing to fund the kinds of things that they need to over time. Okay. So you're you're hopeful, but you'll believe it when you see it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I'll be watching the news from my couch. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for thanks for sticking with us. Um, okay. So one of the things we keep in mind here at AWC is that our cities and towns vary considerably in size. So just as an example, the city of Seattle has about 14,000 residents for every one resident in the town of Krupp. So more than half of our towns in Washington have a population that's under 5,000. And I wonder how that dynamic between urban and rural has changed either, either over the decades or I know you've worked in other states. So what, what do you see in Washington or in, in the year 2021 that, that is different from other places or times in, in terms of that dynamic between urban and rural? I think that in our state, we have a very uh, cooperative spirit among city officials that is somewhat unique. Um, every state has its unique differences. When I was in Iowa, there were only nine cities that had populations above 50,000 out of 956 communities. So there was a perception that, you know, the Des Moines metro area got everything and nobody else got anything. When I was in Colorado, you had the front range, the cities along the front range where the primary population is, and then you had the western slope where a lot of the resort and agriculture was, and then you had eastern Colorado. So you always have that dynamic about differences in a state. But again, I think in Washington, the spirit of cooperation among our city officials is is unique. Not to say there aren't differences of opinion on policy issues. Everybody's able to voice those opinions, but I think we're very unique in that At the end of the conversation, we all get together and we decide this is best 
for the majority of our cities. And that's where we go. You know, specifically with the COVID pandemic, one of the things that we've we've read about and uh, seen, at least the kind of in, in incipient form, is that that trend towards urbanization that's been occurring over the last few decades. If if it's not reversing, it's at least in question. Will will our state continue to urbanize, or will people, uh, as they have more telework opportunities, move to more suburban or rural uh, rural areas and uh, I guess I'm curious about your opinion on that. I think we're going to see a balance. I don't think we're going to be, see a huge exodus from our our larger cities or our more urban areas. Um, I think if you look at what's going on with the growth in Spokane, as an example, I don't. I think that's going to continue. I think people view that as a very desirable place, and they're going to be able to to work to telework. But also, I think that's going to mean other businesses are going to be in Spokane, as one example. I don't think that we're going to have a hollowing out of Seattle or or a big exodus from Tacoma. I think you're going to continue to see those cities to be solid, but you're also going to see people who prefer and are able to work from a remote location or a more or a more remote location. So we're going to see, you know, the Walla Wallas and the Chelans and the other locations where people say that's where I want to be. I can do my job from there or I want to move my business there. And it makes sense to be able to do that. So I think we're going to see a, a balancing out, but not necessarily to the detriment of the more urban areas. Yeah, that's a, that, that'll be an interesting trend to watch. But that sounds like a well thought out position on it. I am curious about, uh, you know, one of the things we've seen that I'll, I'll say is unfortunate over the last few years has been an increased polarization politically. Now, of course, we're a nonpartisan organization. Um, but as you see some of those divides, uh, east, west, rural, urban, uh, left, right. I wonder if you think there's any good way out of this, what, what feels like an increasing um, just deadlock between two opposing sides and, you know, bringing kind of this federal uh, national political view down to the local level and, and increased polarization. Do you see any hope for getting out of that situation? Well, my hope would be that at the local level, we we focus on solutions. And I think for the most part, we do. I don't think that the national dialogue has, has really permeated local politics in a few places and a few people, yes. But that's not what cities and towns are about. I mean, they're about people who re- literally are volunteering by running for office to be a leader locally to help their community. So the, the idea that the polarization is leading to increased problems. In some cases, it has locally, but for the most part, I really do view this as a national phenomenon that's beginning to seep down into the local. But I think as long as we focus on what's best for my community and our elected officials are doing that, that we can kind of stem that tide of that attitude that, you know, this issue is a, a progressive issue or this issue is more conservative or we need to you know, dominate the city council or county commissioners. I don't, I hope that that isn't happen. Um, time will tell. Yeah. And and I agree with you. I think there is a lot of hope in that localization of politics. Some people will say that, a, you know, a pothole isn't uh, Republican or Democrat. And so maybe if, if people are focusing on those same specific problems, that that is a good way out of that polarization. And I will have to say in my work with in other states, and when I was working with a national association, working with uh, states in the U.S. and um, in Canada, it varies by region. I mean, there are places in the in the country where county level is very partisan. 
um, city less so, but people do identify and promote more on a partisan basis than we do in our state. I think we really are focused on how do we make our communities, our cities, our towns better places to live and setting the politics on the side. That's encouraging. Uh, one topic of interest that we see at the top of the, the list whenever we poll our members is the question of economic development. And uh, that's also something that seems to have changed uh, over the years. Um, I, I've spent some time in economic development, and I know there's there's the older trend of kind of what they call smokestack chasing, where you want to get the big industry into your town. But as, um, as manufacturing has become in some ways less of a, um, a powerhouse in economic development, people are often looking to attract the next big tech company. Um, how do you see the situation in Washington currently and, and going forward? What do you see as some of the trends in economic development that you anticipate? I mean, right now, post-COVID, I think it's our cities trying to help local businesses stay on their feet, get back on their feet, and then be as productive as possible. So I think that's really is where the concentration is now. How do we make our community of 5,000 people or 2,500 people attractive to small business? And how do we make sure that they're attracted and that they can survive and then flourish? So I'm not seeing at least this isn't necessarily my area of expertise, but I don't think we have lots of cities that are out there like, you know, chasing the next big company. I think they're focusing on what can we do in my downtown to have a location, to have a presence, to have a feel so that people want to come down, want to live in the area and that will make it flourish. Yeah. And, and, and anecdotally, I think we've seen that when we talk to our members, they talk about supporting those main street businesses and that that's their kind of top of mind concern. Um, it, there was a good example in a recent uh, City Vision article on Walla Walla. They talked about creating a downtown space with some outdoor seating and that kind of thing. It was a response to COVID and it was one that they've, they've talked about. Well, maybe we need to keep this. It adds a nice feel to the downtown. And it goes back to the, the Main Street program, which has been going on for decades, where they focus on how do we make Main Street flourish? How do we make it attractive to people? How do we encourage businesses to locate here? How do we make sure they get the support that they need from a, from a city perspective so that people um, do participate in downtown activities? There was recent legislative changes regarding TIF, uh, tax increment financing. Do you see that changing the landscape of economic development significantly? I think that it's going to take some time. I think there are a couple projects already that are beginning to take hold, but it's not, it's, it's not, um, hasn't been tested yet. But I think five years from now, I think we'll probably see many more projects that are, that are um, you know, tax increment finance related and maybe to the smaller communities. But it's not a not necessarily a simple thing to implement, so I think we're going to have to do some learning. Again, we're one of a handful of states, if only a t two or three, that don't have tax increment financing. So there are all sorts of great lessons to be learned from other parts of the country. Well, I know that we were we were glad to see that change in the in the most recent legislative session. That was a good thing. But I'd like to turn our attention to bad things, Peter, specifically to bad meetings. Don Britton, the former AWC president and mayor of Kennewick, recently mentioned a bad meeting that the two of you had. Can you tell us what, <laughs> what makes a meeting a bad meeting, Peter? Great question. Well, I think the Mayor, mayor Britton and I, during one of our legislative conferences, as we have done, we arranged for meetings. So we, we knew that we were going to go into a meeting that might not go as smoothly as we anticipated. But 
This was a meeting that was pretty chilly. Uh, it was one where he was uh, explaining to us all of the things that we weren't doing and all of the things that we should be doing. And it was pretty uncomfortable. So I've been through many of those kinds of meetings. And what you're saying in the meeting is a little bit different than what you're thinking or what you wish you could say. <laughs> but you also recognize that the person that you are talking with is a person of power. And um, so you deal with that. So as we left the meeting and we were walking out side of the meeting, um, I think um, my comment to Mayor Britton was, well, that's not the worst meeting I've been in, but I would put it in the top five. <laughs> and that's after 40 years of uh, having some kinds of meeting. I think the, the moral of the story is that there are times when AWC staff are, you know, were taken to the woodshed mm -hmm. by people in power because of the positions that our organization takes or city officials tell us, this is what we want and this is what we need and this is what you need to do. Well, there are people that are going to disagree with that point of view, but that part that's part of the job. Um, we are sometimes um, taken to the woodshed because of what we're doing, and we recognize that that's part of the job. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but that does happen. Well, you know, Peter, you said that was in the top five of the worst meetings that you've ever been in, which for me just raises the question of if there's any other bad meetings that you can tell us about. Oh, it's I've it's got entertaining a, to hear got about. a lot of those. Okay. One that I recall was when I was in Iowa, and this was pre-cell phones. So we all had pagers. And when the lobbyists at the Hill, I was not on the Hill on a daily basis, but if there were an issue they needed to talk to me about, I would get a 911 uh, call on my, uh, my beeper that we each had, and then I'd have a conversation with the lobbyist. Well, one day I got a 911 call, and so the lobbyist found a phone booth, called me at the office and said, we need to, we've been called to the speaker's office. You need to come up for a meeting with the speaker. And I said, so, okay, well, when is this scheduled? Like now. I said, okay. So I did my 20-minute walk from the office to the Capitol. We went into the speaker's office, and interestingly, the the desk of the assistant speaker was out kind of in the lobby. And as we walked in and sat down at that desk, I noticed the our weekly legislative bulletin was on the assistant speaker's desk with certain portions highlighted for us to see before he, before he showed us into the speaker's office. Anyway, we had made some comments in our weekly legislative bulletin about conversations we thought that the speaker had with a number of union representatives on issues that were negative to our cities as employers. And we we had some choice words in our legislative report that we made to our members about what the speaker was doing. So we had a, a nice conversation, one-way conversation for the most part, <laughs> with the speaker explaining to us, asking us how we knew what that conversation was since we weren't in the room and other things. So we were dismissed from that. Also, understanding that, well, when we write our legislative bulletin, we can get very excited, but sometimes people like you, Brian, need to edit that out, <laughs> tone that down, make sure that we're being appropriate. That's good. You know, I, Peter, that had a lot of uh, really interesting artifacts from the past. You had a phone booth made an appearance in that story, a pager. Uh, printed newsletters. These are all things we may have to explain in the notes of the podcast Probably what, what they mean. Yes, that's the reality. That's great. Any other uh, bad meetings 
we should know about Peter? Well, I wouldn't say it was a bad meeting, but it, uh, working up to a meeting was, you know, I think sometimes you work yourself up thinking about how bad a meeting is going to be when in fact it wasn't. But I was in Colorado as the director of the Association of Counties during the 1996 welfare reform implementation from the federal level. And counties were opposed to many of the things that the state wanted to do from that welfare reform. So we were regularly on the opposite side of what the governor wanted, opposite side of what his Department of Human Services wanted. And I have to say we were probably making progress or this call to this meeting probably would not have been made. But I did get a call one day saying, the governor wants to meet with you and your president Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, governor's mansion, be there. So my president and I showed up and we had a very good conversation about what the point of view of counties was. He and his director of human services were there and, and I was there with my president. My president chose not to say anything, which was fine, but I have to say that it was very um, collegial. It wasn't a bad meeting. I think thinking, I, I thought it was going to be a very bad meeting when you're called to the governor's mansion on Saturday morning. It's not normally not for coffee. Um, so it, it turned out fine. We had our disagreements. We laid out our position. He encouraged us to change our position. For the most part, we did not. But that was one of those meetings where anticipation was worse than the event. And as we left, my president, who ha again, hadn't said anything during the meeting, turned to me and said, oh, thank you so much. I would take you into a meeting with the president of the United States with me if we're called. I was hopeful that we would never do that. Um, but that was one where, you know, those are things that happen when you're representing a point of view that not everybody agrees with. And, you know, almost every issue, you're going to have somebody else on that on the other side. Your stories about bad meetings, Peter, there's almost a, like a principle that emerges that if you're being effective in the legislative arena, you've got to be at least ready for some bad meetings. They I may not materialize. That is very true. You would not be called in if you were not being effective. If you were if you were just not being effective, they wouldn't want to even talk to you. They would just be doing whatever they wanted to do. So yes, very true. And I think the nice ending to that was when I left Colorado, I had a very nice note from the director of the human services department, who clearly we had differences of opinions, but she just wrote me a very nice note and said, you know, I know we've had our differences, but I so appreciate, you know, the professional nature of our relationship, the fact that we we could disagree without being disagreeable. And so it was really a nice a nice gesture on her part. That's great. Well, Peter, as we've mentioned, it's been uh, over 45 years that you've been in a career as a CEO or on staff with various associations. You keep and saying that, 45 years. That's it sounds a long like a long time, time doesn't it? <laughs> you know, the thing that bothers me, Peter, is it does sound like, like a long time. And then I do the math and think, well, that was just the mid 70s. That wasn't that long ago. That's right. It's troubling how that works. Um, but over those years, you know, day in and day out, most days are, are, are more or less the same. Uh, you know, most days don't contain some kind of big news event. But in that 45 years, big things have happened. What do you remember? What sticks out is kind of big, um, big memorable days for you? Well, one is 9-11. Is and I, I think that probably comes to mind because we just saw the 20th anniversary of that. But that day... I was with the American Public Works Association 
and we were in the middle of our annual conference, which has 5,000 people and 500 exhibitors, and we happened to be in the convention center in Philadelphia when that all happened, when that hit. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's something, obviously, we all remember where we were. I remember where I was. And the fact that we were in a city that was in lockdown because we, we didn't know, it was not known whether Philadelphia was going to be a target. And at that point, everything was, was unknown. So we had public works directors, city staff, consultants, and others from across North America in Philadelphia, they were getting contacted by their mayor or their division director saying, uh, where are you? We've got issues we need to deal with locally. They're trying to figure out how do I get back in touch with my bosses? How do I get home? Uh, this is a problem. Fortunately for me, we had public works directors, many of whom had been through emergency management training. They may be the emergency manager for their city. So they, they, their training kicked in and we set up a, an operations center within a couple of hours in the convention center. We got landlines in there. We got ability for people to call their office, call their families to let them know, hey, I'm okay, here's what's going on. Um, but that was one where, boy, that was, a, that was certainly an event. We ended up basically being holed down for a couple of days in Philadelphia. We shut the meeting down, obviously. Most people couldn't leave, uh, but we were all there. We had people going out and buying 14 passenger vans so that they could load people up from their state and drive home. Uh, we had people leasing buses from Kansas City because our headquarters was Kansas City, leasing buses and having the bus drive to Philadelphia so that it could be filled up with people going back home. At the time, cell phone services, as you all know, that was jammed. People couldn't get out. So fortunately, I was able to get through to my wife, who was in D.C., and, you know, let her know that I'm fine and find out what was going on with my family, which, you know, was disconcerting. As I was talking with her, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing F-16s flying over our house because we were between about Dulles Airport and the Pentagon. So it was that was definitely a. I don't know if I'd call it a highlight, but it was an experience where, um, you know, nothing like it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's the smallest thing, of course, but to be at a, at a conference, to be involved in the planning of conferences, that realization that everything we just planned is immediately out the window, it, you know, and, and to sh shift focus on a dime like that is and, just such a... And know, normally, thing. prior to that, most places didn't really have an emergency plan for a conference. Um, we immediately did because we had other circumstances where there could be hurricanes and, you know, we had at different locations. But yeah, we immediately said, okay, uh, we kind of winged it here on this one, but we need to have a very detailed emergency management plan. If something happens, whatever it might be, when we have five, we're responsible for 5,000 people in a location, what are we going to do? Well, that's certainly a big one. What else, Peter? Well, I do also remember Katrina when... New Orleans was devastated back in 2005. Um, I was able to go down probably three or four different times, not right away, but afterward, because the communities, not just New Orleans, but other affected communities throughout that region really needed some assistance on, you know, how do we deal with FEMA? How do we deal with the utilities out? How do we re 
rebuild after that. So that was one that I what I remember so sharply being able to go down several months after that and drive with another staff member through areas that were still look you know months later still looked like the event happened um, yesterday. And so it was it was devastating. Follow up meetings, going and meeting with the public works departments and others to help them try to figure out, you know, where can they get federal money? What plans do they have? It was just a, it was almost an overwhelming type of experience because people didn't know exactly where to start and where are the resources and uh, what do we need to do here. Well, Peter, as you see um, the the day approaching, that's like your last day. I know you're looking forward to it and the things that are coming next. But just to to take a quick look back, what what is it that you would look back on your uh, your career as a point of pride for you? Well, I would say the point of pride would be wherever I've been, I've, I've, I believe I've always put the needs of members first. Yeah. And I think that's been true of the staff that I've worked with. I've never been with an organization or with staff people that haven't said, you know, the cities are the, are the primary reason we're here and we put them first. And everything we do is to be responsive and helpful to the city members. So that, that gives me a lot of pride to think that we've been helpful over the years to people who've basically volunteered their time and efforts and expertise to make their community better. Uh, I would say the other would be just the opportunities that I've had to work with some really outstanding professionals uh, wherever I've been. AWC is top of the list, but I've just had the chance to work with lots of different people. And I would say that it's it's hard to see staff leave. Um, I think I've been pretty good about picking out really talented people and bringing them on board. But talented people also have other opportunities, <laughs> right? right. They, 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 they can go other places. And I've had lots of people who've gone on to what I would say bigger and better opportunities. And I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I was with them when they were on staff and all of a sudden they're, you know, on a staff of another group. Um, they might be the CEO. A couple of people have gone on to be CEOs of either state or national associations. A gentleman I worked with ended up being a deputy chief of staff to a governor. A couple who were a chief legislative staff for uh, the director of national intelligence, um, a woman I worked with, went on to be the congressional liaison for NCIS. Um, so some really interesting yeah. career changes. But again, in each case, I was fortunate to be able to work with them for a few years and then, you know, fully support them going on to find something more exciting or different that they wanted to to accomplish. So I feel proud of of the people that I've been able to work with. That's great. Well, Peter, uh, what what comes next for you? Are there any big uh, any big goals? Anything you're anticipating? Uh, major, you know, you want to learn a new language, climb a mountain? No. Okay. <laughs> not a, not a language, not a mountain. Hopefully, as the pandemic gets a little bit more under control, my wife and I will be able to do some traveling. We'd hope to do that, but that's a bit on the back burner, like everybody else. We have uh, three grandchildren, all based at the East Coast at this point, so we're we're planning on getting back there and spending a little bit more time with our our two children, their spouses, and our three grandchildren. We have a son in California, so uh, hopefully get some time down there. But, you know, more golf. I haven't played much golf lately. I'm definitely going to be riding my bike much more there to, you go. to, to uh, get outdoors. But really kind of trying to uh, take my foot off the gas pedal a little bit because it's been 
jammed on that gas pedal for 45 years, uh, and I, I'm, I think I can do that, or I might be still be going 100 miles an hour, but in different directions, not work-related. I don't know is the answer. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much for spending some of your, your final hours in the office with me here, Peter. I really appreciate your time, and best of luck in what comes next. Thank you, Brian. Good to talk with you. Likewise. Likewise.